You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. I'm Chris Coyne, the Associate Director of the F.A. Hayek Program for the Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at George Mason University. Uh, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Pete Betke, who's a university professor of economics and philosophy at George Mason, as well as the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for the Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. So, Pete, thanks for talking with me today. Well, thank you for taking the time out uh, to have this conversation. Uh, and what we're going to talk about today is the formation, history, and significance of the Hayek Program. And so let's start kind of at, at a very high level uh, in the present and talk a little bit about what the Hayek Program is all about, its mission, goal, uh, and purpose as a, as a program. Yeah, so I think that uh, our main uh, mission, is, as you know, because you're my co-conspirator in this, is that uh, we live in a, in a profession um, which has, for most of the 20th century, uh, sort of pushed uh, questions of political economy out of uh, the uh, live research program. And we're trying to uh, be part of the group of people that build a community of scholars committed to research and teaching at, um, and training the next generation of teachers um, in a broad approach to political economy, the relationship between uh, political economy and liberalism <clears throat> and, and uh, how uh, that... Uh, uh, those uh, follow from that, and, and mainly what are the methodological, analytical, and social philosophical questions that follow from uh, pursuing a consistent and persistent vision of Adam Smith and David Hume, of Frederick Bastiat and John Baptiste Say, of John Stuart Mill, and then into the 20th century with the early Austrians, Menger, Bambavrik, uh, Mises, and Hayek but also in the latter half of the 20th century with people like Jim Buchanan and Ronald Coase and Doug North and, and Vernon Smith, our colleague, former colleague Vernon Smith. And so the Hayek program takes uh, Hayek's name uh, mainly because Hayek in many ways was the most uh, consistent and persistent Smithian of the middle half of the 20th century, reinvigorating the Smithian project against the kind of project which was for social uh, engineering, or one way to think about it is the economics profession in the 20th century moved in a direction of away from a, a view of social understanding to a view of social control, and we're trying to wrest the terms of the debate back to being one about social understanding. Great. Um, now, the, the, the program, the Hayek program, has a, has a long history, um, the, the Hayek program being the current manifestation, but you've been involved uh, w with the program for, for decades, and so I thought uh, we might step back and kind of talk a little bit about that history and, and where the Hayek program came from and kind of its evolution over time. Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. I, I, I chuckled a little bit because I don't really think of myself as being an 
elderly statesmen uh, these days, but I guess when I look in the mirror, I'm getting older every day. But I still actually come to work thinking the same way that I did when I was a graduate student, which was so excited about dealing with these ideas, playing with these ideas, working, teaching them, communicating, trying to, to play with them. And I was a graduate student here at George Mason in 1984 to 1988. Um, as I was a, a student and part of a program inside the economics department uh, um, that was associated with the Center for the Study of Market Processes. And we are the uh, uh, heirs of that program. That's, that's the continuation of that program. And um, when I left George Mason, so I left George Mason in 1988, and I returned in 1998, so I was away for a decade, um, and I was, I was very fortunate to be in some very good environments during that time away and, and very intellectually charged environments, but nothing was quite like the environment that I had at the Center for Study of Market Processes and at George Mason's Economics Department. And so I was thrilled when I got the chance to come back here um, just because of that intellectual energy and synergies that are involved um, with that. And so I had a fantastic professor at the Center for Study of Market Processes, Don Lavoy. Um, Don um, had, uh, and he was part of four faculty members um, that were at the Center for Study of Market Processes, Karen Vaughn, uh, Don Lavoy, Jack High, and, uh, <clears throat> and um, uh, for a while there, Thomas DiLorenzo, um, but also uh, there was, uh, well, one of the founders of it was Rich Fink. Um, he founded the Center for Study of Market Processes. Then he left to go uh, start some other groups in Washington, D.C. Um, Karen Vaughn, Don Lavoy were the constants throughout that period of time. Jack High came in. Tom DiLorenzo was here. Victor Vanberg, John Egger. Um, they were all part of the program at one time or another while I was in grad school, later joined by Don Boudreaux and George Selgin. Um, and, you know, the normal thing with faculty is people retire, they move on and, and whatnot. And so by the time I returned here, the Center for Study of Market Processes um, no longer existed. Um, and so all of those activities, and Don Lavoy had moved from the economics department over to the School of Public Policy. And so when I was teaching, I took over part of Don's courses and I took over part of Jim Buchanan's courses who had just retired. So that was kind of the reason for me coming back here was to teach Buchanan's constitutional political economy course and to teach uh, Lavoie's uh, comparative economics and Austrian courses. And so when I, I came here, I did those three graduate courses and then taught in the Honors College, uh, the same program you taught in as well. Um, and I taught a course called uh, uh, the um, uh, uh, Contemporary Societies in Multiple Perspectives, which was a, a lot of fun. And I miss teaching that class now because as I've evolved, I've, I get less teaching assignments and more graduate assignments with it. But I miss teaching the undergraduates. Um, and one of the things at the Center for Study of Market Processes that made it unique and has continued to influence the way we do things um, is that um, all of the professors at the Center for Study of Market Processes, except for Karen Vaughan, were assistant professors. They weren't yet, you know, full professors with their own established research directions. So the way that they attracted interest was through developing student programs. 
uh, and providing student fellowships and whatnot to teach the next te next generation of teachers of economics. And so they always put a high value on learning how to be a good teacher. This is one of Rich Fink's uh, main uh, sort of ideas when he started the center was that um, the participants in the program would recognize the importance of becoming a teacher of principles of economics, like that first class. And so we were thrown into teaching, you know, right away and we developed that and the fellowship opportunities we had were all ways to help us become better teachers of economics, um, to become better communicators of economic ideas. And so I like to, to say that if you envision, you know, economics as coming in kind of a uh, to use a sports analogy from baseball, you have a five-tool player. Um, in economics, uh, we can have five-tool economists, and those are that you first have to be able to learn how to talk to your peers in the scientific discipline to try to communicate the sins of omission that are going on because they're involved in their own research program. But they might, if we think that political economy is important or Hayekian, Hayekian knowledge problems are important or Kersnerian market process theory is important, we have to show that their approach misses out on something. The burden of proof is on us to show that the standard practice is missing something. And so that's the first thing. We have to be able to communicate with our scientific peers. The second thing is we have to be able to communicate to our students in the classroom. And so we have to make economics a live subject, uh, intellectually interesting, not a catechism, but an invitation to inquiry. Um, this is what it means to be a university and college teacher. Third, uh, because we care about ideas, we want to communicate those ideas to the general public as a public intellectual, not necessarily you know, writing to specific audiences, but just economic education for the citizen. Um, and then fourth, um, we want to communicate the ideas of economics to make sense of pressing issues in public policy. And then fifth, you have to actually understand what it means to build programs, to be a citizen in a university, to contribute to the life of a university. And so if you think about those as five talents, our program is really focused on what way we develop young people to be able to understand those five talents. And I think that's so different. When I was at, at New York University, where I taught for eight years from 1990 to 1998, you know, our focus was only on one of those things. And that was how do you communicate to your scientific peers? And we devoted a lot of our effort in trying to teach kids how to be research scientists in economics, um, but not necessarily good teachers, certainly not public intellectuals, certainly not economics as applied to public policy. And they didn't have to worry about the, you know, if anything, we talk about grantsmanship, which is how you get an NSF grant to support your research for what you're doing. And that's different. And so, you know, one of the things that, that is a great pleasure, and I'm sure that you feel the same way, is when we go and we see our alumni and they're outstanding teachers and they're developing programs outside of the classroom for their students, you know, like reading groups or uh, special, you know, lecture series that they bring in, or they become the person at their university that runs the Fed Challenge, or they help advise the economic society of the undergraduates doing that. And it's always fascinating for me to see it because it's like, this is ultimately the most important thing we're ever going to do is as our job as teachers and communicators of economic ideas 
in the most basic sense. And so I think our program has seen that continuity from Rich Fink and his vision of the Center for Study of Market Processes all the way forward to today in the way that we're still trying to do it. Though the challenges have changed, the intellectual landscape has changed, nevertheless, that still vision of we are a shop that helps educate the future educators of economics, I think is, is the, the core thing that you and I get passionate about. Sure. And so there's the, the program has this long and storied tradition, and, and that tradition uh, as a foundation is clearly still here. Uh, and, and influences on a daily basis. That said, the well, you know, and this links in with some of the things you were just talking about at the end of your response. The kind of portfolio of activities that are associated with the Hayek program have expanded dramatically for the for the better, I would say, over time. Even though that foundation, uh, you know, the kind of the core mission is the same. And so, I, I was hoping you'd say a few words about some of the main activities of the Hayek program, and and how they fit in perhaps with. Uh, you know, that idea of the five-tool uh, uh, player or five-tool economist, because I think they map nicely to that a lot of the things we do um, on a daily basis. Uh, and so, so please say a few words about that. Well, one of the things that I really love about our new physical plant is, uh, so in 2015, we moved into a new physical plant. The Hayek program itself was established officially in 2012. And uh, prior to that, um, it was really just a, a program uh, that was more or less centered around myself and a few faculty. But as we made hires and people evolved in their um, approach and advanced in their rank in the university, we had a coalition of people that could form and create a Hayek program. And we received a... Uh, very fortunate, we received a major grant from the Templeton Foundation uh, to help us get started, and then that was matched by a couple other foundations, uh, about, and then some private donors, um, including Patrick Byrne of Overstock.com and and uh, Ethel May Humphreys and her family, and the Earhart Foundation, and and uh, and and others as well as the Koch Foundation. And so we were very fortunate that Templeton decided to bet on us and then other people were able to coalesce around that. And the way we built the program up was first and foremost, graduate student programs. And so we have, for our graduate students, we have fellowships um, that allow them, this is to the students here at George Mason. So we have PhD fellowships for students that are very competitive uh, for them to get not only into the program, but to get funding for that. And that deadline is coming up. So any students that if this comes out before the deadline, get your get your stuff in before the deadline. Um, but we bring in graduate students that work with each of the faculty. We support the research of the faculty, which has um, been very, very productive. One of the things that I love coming in here and seeing is that we have on display the various book covers uh, around the building and those book covers get shifted out all the time because we got new books coming up. Um, we also have a lot of faculty that edit journals um, and are very involved with the editing process both in book series but in the academic journals as well. And so we have a very vibrant um, research commitment but also bringing the graduate students into that research process. So we designed for them a graduate student paper workshop which I think is pretty unique, where you get uh, three faculty at a minimum, 
three faculty show up every week to discuss the research in progress of our graduate students, starting with actually sometimes even first-year graduate students are presenting the papers, let alone the fourth-year students that are on the market. And so they all get exposed to that. It's built on the idea of the, of the uh, traditional economics uh, workshop, which means that it's very critical and doesn't give a lot of time for them to give their presentation. They just, the paper's available, everyone reads it, the expectation is all the other graduate students have to actually write comments in advance and they share them with the graduate student. We have a weekly workshop in philosophy, politics, and economics for outside uh, visitors that come. Um, we have a, uh, and so that's just your regular research workshop where someone gives a paper, uh, sends the paper in advance, everyone reads it, then we have, we workshop the paper, um, and those are other professors at other universities. Um, and then we have uh, distinguished lectures. Uh, we have a Hayek lecture, uh, and we have a Buchanan lecture every year, um, and that we bring in uh, uh, various different uh, scholars of some note that have developed research. Not They're not lectures on Buchanan. They're not lectures on Hayek, but they're in the broad theme of those speakers. So as, as you know, like one of those special uh, uh, seminars that we had featured Vernon Smith, uh, uh, you know, Ned Phelps, um, Eric Maskin, um, discussing the implications of Hayek's writings on the future work of other Nobel Prize winners. And so we had it uh, talking about uh, Phelps and the idea of macroeconomics and entrepreneurship. We had Vernon talking about experimental economics and Eric Maskin talking about, um, you know, basically informational economics and mechanism design theory. And then more recently, we had one about Jim Buchanan, which featured Luigi Zangales, Barry Weingast, Dave Schmitz, and Mike Munger uh, uh, giving that talk. I should mention that the earlier talk on Hayek, we also had, in the same way that Munger gave his talk, we had Israel Kirzner give a talk on the significance of, of uh, those respective people. And so we've had those in the you know, talks, and they've been very good. Deirdre McCloskey has given one of those. Roland Fryer has given uh, one of those talks. And uh, we'll have Vivian Zellinger next year give one of those talks. Um, and so it's very exciting to, to see that um, as a, a very uh, opens up the intellectual community at George Mason University to speakers that might not otherwise have been here. We give them that opportunity to do that. Um, we run a book conferences after books have been published which are uh you know to celebrate the kind of work that has been done uh, by scholars we just had randy holcomb here on his book political capitalism and we gather people from other places to come to comment on the book and then we have the author there but then we also do book vetting which is before books are published this actually was featured in the chronicle of higher education about our program and with regard to deirdre mccloskey's bourgeois trilogy that was what that was on but you know prior to that we also did the the project on many doug north's works as well as joel mulcure's and 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 also timur uh Karan's book on the long divergence but coming up we're going to be doing one on another timur Karan book we're going to also be doing one on bruce caldwell's biography on hayek just this spring so it's uh, we're a very busy place. Uh, these activities are, are fantastic um, as far as the intellectual life of the place. 
and are uh, we're just very happy at the moment I think for the intellectual energy that's in the building yeah I mean so we have a lot going on um, and uh, you and I are both involved in a lot of these activities I want to touch on two aspects of what you said and ask you to say a little more because I think it's important and and one of the things that we're always emphasizing and it's uh, you know part of the culture among the faculty but also something that we try to get the graduate students to recognize is this point you were raising about being engaged in the profession and so uh, many of us are engaged in the profession in in a variety of ways but but one of the ways that you yourself recently have been engaged is is leading organizations and so you were you were recently the president of the uh, southern economic association as well as the montpelerin society and so I was hoping you'd say a, a few words about your experience in, in both of those cases. Um, and I, I think that's important because it, it really gets at this point that you're talking about going all the way back to the, the origins of, of what today is the Hayek program, uh, about the importance of not just training the next generation of professional economists, but also being actively engaged in the profession as well. Yeah. Um, so as you know, when it comes to academic administration, no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, so uh, you sign up for these things and then you get sucked into doing all the administrative stuff. But it's important. Science, uh, you know, who doesn't get rewarded enough in science is editors. You know, they, they never get, no one ever talks about them, but they, if there's no editors, there's no journals, there's no book series, right? And so, and, and the editors, acquisition editors at the, at the, um, you know, at the presses, you know, they, 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 these are the, science has a whole bunch of people behind it that allow for the scientists to be the scientists. And the sooner you recognize that and respect people for their various roles, uh, the better it's going to be for you because uh, it's a mistake for academics to think that the world, uh, the sun rises and shines, you know, based on them. And so there's something behind all of these things. And we try to demonstrate that. And so many of us have been, uh, you know, presidents of a variety of different associations, served as vice presidents for these various professional organizations. Um, and, you know, our idea is to start with our groups that promote Austrian economics and the kind of market process economics that we care about and then branch out broader and broader to try try to have a bigger influence from that point of view within the profession as a whole. So we're not happy to stay, as Jim Buchanan used to say, the arrogance of the eccentric. But on the other hand, we're not willing to uh, give up on the ideas that we care passionately about just to have an ambitious career. So I would say that one of the biggest things that we try to communicate to our students in our words and in our deeds is the difference between ambition and aspiration. We want people to be aspiring to greatness, not have the ambition of careerism. And that is a very big aspect of our program and what we try to do. Individuals like you and me and, and that have devoted an awful lot of our energy to the organization of scientific activity as opposed to just doing the scientific activity ourselves is because we want to uh, we want to create spaces in our profession for the kind of ideas we care about and I think that that's what if you go back and you study the history of people like Hayek people like Buchanan uh, people like the Ostroms especially Lynn Ostrom, uh, Vernon Smith. Uh, these are our role models here. 
uh, Kenneth Balding, who was a teacher of mine in the old days, um, is another one. These are people who were intimately involved in the organization of intellectual uh, or scientific inquiry. And so I was very, very um, honored to be given the chance to be the president of both the Southern Economic Association and the uh, Mont Pelerin Society. I didn't lobby to be <laughs> those uh, assignments in either case. Um, they were offered to me, and when I was asked, I just said, sure, you know, what can I do? Because to me, you know, in both of those cases, to be very honest with you, you know, when I was a kid, a first-year graduate student, I had to read What Should Economists Do by Jim Buchanan. And it had a major impact on the way that I think about how I do economics to this day. It's had a life-changing effect on me. And that was his presidential address to the Southerns. So despite all my years at the Southerns, when I think about the Southerns, I still think about Jim Buchanan and the What Should Economists Do. And so when I had a chance to, to uh, be asked to be president of the, of the Southern, that was a big draw for me was the idea that, oh, I get to do something that Jim Buchanan did. I never would have expected that, nor did I have any expectation that I should even get something like that. So I was given that chance and it was like a great opportunity and a similar thing with the Mont Pelerin Society. I mean, to me, you know, Hayek started that society. It has a very important purpose. Uh, that purpose still is necessary today uh, to build a community of liberal minded scholars to think about the future of the liberal society and and what all that entails the supporting intellectual infrastructure and the necessary institutional infrastructure of a liberal society the tensions in the liberal project uh the difficulties it faces in the in the world that we that uh we live in today as opposed to the world of the 1940s and so, again, it was a great opportunity. Um, I did that for, you know, I was elected that in, in 2016. I just finished my term in 2018. Southern's is a little longer period because I was a vice president before that and then, and then moved into that. And so I, I'm a big believer in both organizations, uh, the Southern Economic Association, Mont Pelerin Society. But we're actively involved, as you know, in the uh, in the uh, as participants as well as in the Association of Private Enterprise Education, which has become a very important society, the Society for the S uh, Public Choice Society. I also attend as often as I can the History of Economic Society meetings, um, and uh, and of course you know when the possibilities are there at the American Economic Association meetings. This is is what our goal is to. Be part of the conversation with the other economists trying to raise our hand in the classroom of professional opinion and try to bring out the points that come from, you know, Mises and Hayek and Buchanan and Tulloch and bring them to bear on the questions that are being asked by the profession. And, of course, the other organization which you were involved in from its earliest days to the present is the Society for the Development yeah. of Austrian Economics. Yeah. Sorry that I, um, I didn't mention that. that no, was I mean, a, you're the former soci president of... Yeah, that society has now been in existence over 20 years, and it's one of the great, really great pleasures of my life to see the tremendous growth. That, that, that very first meeting could have been held in, like, my living room. And it was held at the Southern Economic Association meetings. Uh, Karen Vaughn was vital to getting that off the ground. 
Uh, she was critical to that. She was president of the Southerns, and she used her position as president to open up that space for people. And now we have an annual dinner that has over 100 people every year. Um, and the sessions run the entire time of the Southerns as a parallel affiliate organization. And uh, you go to the attendance of those sessions, and they're they're packed. They are not like, you know, there's no session for the Society for Development of Washington Economics that has more speakers on the panel than they do in the audience. And that is not uncommon at a lot of professional meetings that you would you would see that. I remember when I was first starting my professional career, they used to have the AEA meetings were uh, right around, they still are, but they're after the new year now, but they used to be between Christmas and New Year's. And my wife and I, we had two young boys and I would have Christmas holiday and then I'd have to go away to the AA meetings. I never miss an AA meeting. And Rosemary would call me and say like, oh, how did your paper go today? And I'd say, oh yeah, it went well. And she'd say, how many people were there? And I'd be, I don't know, about, you know, five or whatever. And she'd be like, you had to fly all the way to San Francisco to present a paper in front of five people. And I'm like, yeah, but they were five important people. Enthusiastic. <laughs> Enthusiastic, yeah. But that's not at all the case at the, Southern, at the Southerns for the Society of Development of Washington Economics. This, because I wasn't president this year, it's the first time I returned in several years to being at the Society for Development of Washington Economics panels. And I went to as many as I could during that period of time. And every single one of them had all the rows filled up. Um, I would say somewhere between 30 to 35 people in each and every session. And some of them, they had multiple sessions. So I was just amazed at the growth and the youth and the quality of the arguments. So it was really exciting. Yeah, I'm, um, I agree with you on all that from my own participation from graduate school up to the present. The other interesting aspect of that organization, linking back to something you said earlier in our conversation, is it's an emphasis not just on professors, but also there's space for graduate students and even undergraduates through the, you know, the Menger competition Menger Award, for, yeah. for undergrads and, of course, the, the Don Lavoie uh, Award for, for graduate students. And so there's also this emphasis on, on integrating um, younger folks and giving them an opportunity to become part of the organization. Can I say well. one more thing about Please. that? Yeah. So when Jim Buchanan got involved in the Southerns uh, in a very serious administrative way in the 1960s, so he be, he's president in 1963. His address is published in the Southern in 1964, but he's involved in organizing and everything of the Southerns. Uh, and Gordon Tullock writes to him, I have a paper, Rosalino Candela and I have a paper that's in the Independent Review on Gordon Tullock. Uh, on this and we quote from a letter from him in which he writes to Buchanan and uh, and says hey Jim perhaps we should start a society within the southern called the society for praxeological economics and or society for praxeology and I think this is so important to understand because Buchanan and Tullock see themselves they even use the term praxeology in the calculus of consent to see their project as following in that in that uh, idea just applied to non-market decision making but it's the praxeological method uh, applied to that and I think that that's crucial and so the Society for Development of Austrian Economics like the Hayek Society is in many ways a persistent and consistent pursuing of the kind of vision of things that came before it and resurrecting it and then developing it in new ways, refining it for new context. And so it's, it's very exciting, I think. Yeah. 
Another aspect of something I want to touch upon a little more detail that you already mentioned is editing. And you are actively involved in editing numerous journals and, and book series, as well as other faculty in the high program. And so the ones that kind of come to mind that I, I'll just mention, and then I want to uh, kind of get your, your thoughts really on whatever it is you want to say about these um, uh, journals or books or the process of being an editor and the importance for the academic profession. But you're, you're, you and I co-edit the Review of Austrian Economics, right. and of course you've been the editor uh, for decades now. Uh, independent Review. Um, we have Public Choice. Pete Leeson, of course, is one of the editors of Public Choice. These are just journals we edit. Uh, of course, there's numerous faculty here that are on editorial boards. You're involved with the Journal of Economics, uh, uh, Behavior and Organization, for instance, and, and we're on all other types of editorial boards. Um, but in addition to that book series, you have a book series with Cambridge University Press that you co-edit with Timur Karan, who you mentioned earlier. Larry White has a series with Routledge that he co-edits. You edit, uh, have a series with Edward Elgar. But in addition to that, you also do a lot of other types of editing. Uh, for instance, I, I know you're uh, the, the co-editor of the collected works of uh, Israel Kersner through Liberty Fund. Uh, and so I wanted to talk about the importance of this in these editing in these various aspects. And in, in your early response, you talked about how in many cases this is kind of a thankless task professionally, but an important one because it, it opens up space for other people to engage in, in scientific endeavors. And so I don't know where you want to take that, but I, I do think it's an important aspect of both the Hayek program, but also what you do as an economist. And so I was, I was hoping to get your thoughts on that. So I, I'm going to start by being somewhat uh, self-effacing. Uh, but the issue was is that um, I'm just a kid from New Jersey that got really turned on to economics by a great professor as an undergraduate, Hans Senholtz. Um, I had experienced some interesting... Um, you know, uh, experience with the economy as a whole when I was uh, 19 years old. Uh, mainly, I experienced in a very real way the gas shortages in New Jersey uh, that existed. They were nationwide, but those that were in New Jersey was where I was at. And the long lines and the problems associated with that um, because of the job that I had in the summer before I went to college. And when I left that job in that summer, um, when I went to get my final paycheck, <laughs> the guy who paid me paid me originally in cash, and then he ripped the money out of my hand and said, got to take withholding out. And it was the first time I ever noticed that someone was taking money from the total cash that I made. That, I understand how stupid this sounds, but I never looked at my paycheck and looked at withholding and said like, oh, someone's taking money out of that. But when it was put in my hand in actual $20 bills and then snatched from me in a physical way and then taken out and said, you know, withholding. And then I see him put it in his pocket. You know, I was like, God, you know, <laughs> this is really bad. And so I had the gas lines and I had the, 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 this issue of the money taking out from taxation. And that was in the back of my head when I got introduced to, to economics and in particular the, the kind of market process economics and the, the classical liberal sort of worldview by Hans Senholtz. And that totally changed my life. I went in a whole different direction and I became a student for the first time. And I had to learn how to become a student while I was in college. I had no preparation to be a student prior to college. And that continued when I went into graduate school. I had to continue to try to learn what does it mean to actually be like a doctoral student. 
So to me, when anyone asked me to do anything, I just said yes. Because I was afraid that if I didn't say yes, I'd never get another, no one would ever ask me again. Because I figured it was like a gift that they were asking me to do anything at all. And this has just stayed with me in the weirdest way, which means that I just continue to say yes to things. When the reality is, is that there's only 24 hours in a day. And, but my dad was a workaholic and he kind of taught me, he said, look, you, you know, you have, you have work to do. That's better than not having a job. That's what he used to say to me all the time. He goes, you know, you got too much work to do. Well, what do you think it's like if you don't have a job, then you have no work to do. That's really bad. So you better like, and so his view was go to bed later, get up earlier. And I've kind of always just thought of that with respect to economics as well. The second thing is when I was at NYU, uh, I don't know whether or not they thought this was a cruel joke or if they really believed it, but both Israel Kirzner and Mario Rizzo kind of convinced me, or at least I interpret what they were saying to me to convince me that my career would turn not just on my own individual merits, but on the stock of Austrian economics as a whole. That is that if Austrian economics was going to fall, then my prospects as a professional economist would fall. But if Austrian economics was to take off, my prospects as an economist would take off. And so again, that reinforced the idea of, hey, I have no right to be here, so I better say yes to anything they ask me to do. And in saying yes, I better do a really good job because I want to make sure that I keep on increasing the, the scope for other people to, to keep doing that. And so as a result, when given the opportunity, so when I was asked to take over the review of Austrian economics, I was still an assistant professor um, at NYU, and uh, then I was, and, and, and in fact, about to be denied tenure. And so it was a very unusual choice. And I just assumed that I wouldn't get the, the opportunity because Mario Rizzo would get it, or Roger Garrison would get it, or, you know, someone that, that was more established, right? That's, you know, who would get it. And they didn't want to do it. And so they kept on telling the publisher, the editor at the, the acquisition editor at the publisher was a, a man named Zach Rolnick, and it was Kluwer. And he had known me because I published my first book with Kluwer, with Zach. And so he knew me, and he got advice from Warren Samuels and some and some other people, Mark Perlman, who was the original editor of the Journal of Economic Literature, and they all knew me. And they said, no, no, Betke's the guy that you should, you know, work with. And so he comes to me and he says, hey, you know, do you want to take over the journal? And I was like, well, if I say no, he's never going to, you know, let me do it again. And so I was like, yeah, I'll do it over. And then, you know, you say yes to things and then you wake up one day and you're like, oh, no, how the hell am I going to do this? And, you know, I have a fantastic life partner and my wife, Rosemary, and she's been very understanding throughout this whole, you know, journey and everything. And she's encouraged me um, and she's, in fact, helped me on several of the projects over the years. And uh, and we just keep doing it. And these opportunities rise up and I say yes to them. And I just uh, and I learn so much from them. So I think the key thing in editing is to recognize that you can learn. So what I love about teaching and love about editing is that I see both of those tools, you know, experiences as inputs into my own research. Like I'm learning so much from having to read the efforts of others to try to communicate their economic ideas. I learn about what I consider to be the bar of an economic argument and can people cross the bar or not.
I learn about what pressing questions are now on the minds of young economists and how we should address and tackle them where we might actually have uh, insights that are being missed in the conventional way of approaching something. And so to me, as long as I keep on viewing my editing and my teaching as inputs into my own constant learning process about how to improve the way I think about economic ideas, it's been mutually reinforcing rather than a huge trade-off. Um, I was once asked um, at an interview at George Washington University when I was coming out of graduate school, I was being interviewed for a job at GW. And uh, in the old days, you used to do the interviews in, in a hotel room. And sometimes they would make the candidate sit on the bed, and then the people would be in a, in a circle of chairs around it. That was awkward. But sometimes they would have one chair, and then the guys would, like, lay around on the bed and things like that. And that's what was going on on this one. And the guy laying down on the bed was in, like, the George Costanza sexy pose kind of thing, you know, with his arm up over his thing. And he goes like this. He said two things to me, which were pretty amazing. The, the first thing was he said, look, you got all these journal articles. I was just coming out of graduate school, and I had already published a a series. I was fortunate in graduate school, and I and I got some publications. And a guy says, "You have all these publications. Uh, don't you think you would have been done with your dissertation faster had you not done these publications?" The reality is, I got my dissertation done in the four years, like a normal person, four and a half years for me to be technically correct. But um, so to me, I was like, "What are you talking about?" Like I got out in like a pretty short amount of time. I wasn't here 10 years. And so I was like, no, I actually think I wouldn't have been able to write my dissertation had I not written those journal articles. And I still feel that way to this day, that so much of what I do is an input into the other production process that keeps going forward. The second question that he said to me wasn't a question, it was a declarative statement, which was at the end of the interview, he goes, he leaning again on the George Costanza sexy pose. And he goes, <laughs> think about how awkward this is. He says, he goes, you know, Pete, some departments can only purchase necessities. Other departments can afford luxuries. You, you're a luxury. <laughs> and then he said, good luck to you. And I like walked out of the room and I thought like, I don't know, is that a compliment or is that a criticism? <laughs> Turned out it was a criticism. I did not get the job. Um, but it, it was a fascinating experience to me because I think a lot of people think of all these things as trade-offs. And you hear this all the time, teaching research trade-off, you know, editing re you know, research trade-off. I've never really, I don't deny scarcity. I don't deny that there are trade-offs. But I always try to use these experiences not as biting trade-offs, but as trade-offs that actually end up by becoming productive inputs into what I'm currently working on. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it's perfect sense. So, so for, uh, I think there's two important points. One, which you just highlighted, is for you personally and for other people that are engaged in these editorial endeavors. You know, it's important to view them as complements, you know, which uh, rather than kind of as substitutes. The the broader point and kind of the public good point, I would I would emphasize is something you touched upon earlier, which is, to the extent you want a vibrant set of ideas or a vibrant research program and for a research program to advance, there has to be people that are willing to incur the cost of doing this, the, yeah. the, the cost of creating kind of a, a, a space or, or a platform for other scientists, other researchers to uh, uh, you know, submit their work, get feedback on their work, and ultimately publish their work. And, and what you've been able to do across these platforms, and when I say platforms, I mean both journal editing as well as book editing, is to, to create but, that space. But just to... Just to 
put a fine point on this. You have to remember is that my teachers, uh, besides Don Lavoie, were uh, Jim Buchanan, Gordon Tullock, and Kenneth Boulding. And all th those three were royalty in economics. I mean, I don't care what anyone says. You have Kenneth Boulding, who's the second John Bates Clark medal winner. You have Jim Buchanan, who's a Nobel Prize winner in economics, and Gordon Tullock, who's a distinguished fellow in the American Economic Association. You really, like, as, as go far and wide, it's hard to imagine being taught by three more accomplished people, um, or at least as accomplished. I mean, that's Samuelson, Tobin, and and uh, you know Solo. If you were educated by them, I, I'm I'm being educated by the same class of of people, but just from a slightly different you know position. So, and what was unique about Buchanan, uh, Tulloch, and Bolding is they were institution builders. Besides being uh, you know their own scholarly you know, giants. And so to me, if Gordon Tullock could edit a journal and he was a genius and pushing out all this great research, it would be really silly for me not to say, oh, I can't edit a journal because I, my research is too important. Or Jim Buchanan, who used to, the greatest trick that Jim Buchanan, you know, pulled on, uh, on all his graduate students was convince him that his success was a function of his work ethic alone. You know, obviously he had a, an engine that was working at much better, but he convinced you that, look, I just get up at 6 o'clock and go home at 6 o'clock, and since I work from 6 to 6, I outcompete the competitor, so you should work from 6 to 6. And so as a result, you're a young person, and you're like, that's who I would like to emulate. Boy, I better get up and do that. And, they, and you know, think about Jim Buchanan and all he did. He built the Center for Study of Public Choice. You know, he started with the Committee on Non-Market Decision-Making. He was involved with the American Economic Association. He was involved with the Southern, as we talked about, with the founding of the Public Choice Society. All of these different things. Buchanan created that intellectual space and created intellectual space for the people coming, you know, after him. If you look at his students, uh, you know, he had such a great record of student success, you know, if you look at people like his early students at, at University of Virginia, you have uh, Toby Davis, who goes on to Carnegie Mellon. You have Charlie Plott, who's at Caltech, one of the founders of experimental economics. You have Mark Pauly, who goes to Penn, and he's one of the top people in the field of health economics, right? You have Bob Tullison, who goes off to Cornell, then Texas A&M, and everything like that. He's a major thinker in public choice. You have my colleague, our colleague, Dick Wagner, who is just you know, a force of nature in the in his productivity and his insights. And so these guys were all part of that group. And then he went to VPI and he did it again, you know, with Randy Holcomb and and that group of people. And so Buchanan, again, devoted himself a lot to teaching and a lot, uh, you know, graduate student supervision and grad student development and also institution building. So to me, I just had great role models that said, this is the way you do professional economics. In addition to Don Lavoie and Israel Kersner, who was my sort of uh, role model when I was at NYU, I looked at him and saw the dedication that he had. I'll tell you a little story about Kersner. Kersner would put a little sign outside of his door, um, and it said the following. If uh, pro Professor Kersner is inside preparing for class to lecture, do not knock. And you put that in. Now, he would be teaching classes that he had taught for 20 years. And he would spend an hour before going in to teach his class just preparing again, like going back over his notes, looking, fixing things, besides all the stuff that he had done, you know, during the week to prepare. So I would see this, and I can remember my kids were going to Catholic elementary school at the time. And I would have to write a check 
for my kids in Catholic elementary school. And here I am at NYU, which at the time is a top 10 department of economic research in the world. It's a fantastic job. It's like when I got the job at NYU, I sang, you know, uh, if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere to my wife. It was, it was, you know, a phenomenal uh, opportunity for me to go there. It felt like I got drafted by the Yankees. Now I had my chance to, to be on the Yankees. So unbelievable minds. I mean, people down the, down the rows, far brighter than I'll ever be, had theorems named after them and things like that. You would go through this. And I'm sitting here writing the check the one day to, to Our Lady of Pompeii Catholic School for the kids' tuition. I stopped and I thought to myself, all right, go through the faculty, 45 faculty members at NYU. Who would you write a check to, the tuition of which is NYU's tuition, which is a very expensive school, for that kid to teach your kid economics? What I should say is all 45, right? But, and, and maybe I'm biased. Again, remember, I got denied tenure there, so maybe I'm biased. But I remember sitting, and this was before I was denied that, so it's not that angry. I still had hope. I was like the, the, the eighth grade kid who thinks he's going to get to the NBA. But anyway, I'm sitting there, and I'm going through, and I'm like, okay, that guy, nah, nah, nah. I kept on saying no to all these people. And then I come to Kersner, and I'm like, oh, yeah. Because Kersner cared so much about teaching and communicating not only to his graduate students, but to his undergraduates. And yet at the same time, we're just finishing his collected works, and it's 10 volumes. You know, the man produced 10 volumes of collected works in his lifetime, and yet he was a devoted teacher and researcher in economics and never once complained that, oh, my teaching load is too high, or, you know, uh, my administrative burden of running the program that he ran is too high. And so I had great role models of that what an academic life consists of is not just dialing it in to teach and then just staying away and doing your research. Yeah, so this is Sorry an, for the long No, no, not there. at all. This is great. Um, I, I want to touch and, and maybe push a little bit on, on another related topic, um, which is this idea of kind of intellectual and institutional entrepreneurship. And so we've been talking about a lot of individuals that were, were well-known and established in the profession but also influenced you but also, you know, played an, an important role in establishing various institutions. And obviously, intellectual entrepreneurship and institutional entrepreneurship are, are connected, as we've been talking about. But if you, if you think about it, several of the individuals we've been talking about had a very interesting kind of career in that they simultaneously had a foot in the profession, but also were out of sync and pushed the boundaries in ways that were, were, were viewed by many as odd, if you will. And so, you know, you have Buchanan and Tulloch pushing into the area of political science uh, and, and, and the role of uh, the economist in understanding things uh, in the realm of constitutions, of political theory, political economics, and so on. Uh, you mentioned Kenneth Boulding. You have Boulding pushing the tools of economics into issues of conflict, defense, and what you know many people would, would say falls under the purview of international relations in, in political science. And, and we could keep going down that list. And so as someone who has who studied under these people, who was influenced by these people, but now in, in, in your career has also, you know, helped develop and now run a program, direct a program that, that is interdisciplinary, that, that appreciates both philosophy, politics, and economics. And of course, your position here at Mason is university professor of economics and philosophy. So, so in all areas of your life, you have a deep appreciation for the intellect, uh, interdisciplinary elements uh, of 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 what it is that we study uh, of the social sciences, uh, what what do you see kind of a, as the the role of of the intellectual and entre uh, institutional entrepreneur, but 
also how, you know, how do you kind of train your students to think about that, to both appreciate the interdisciplinary nature, but also, you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier when you were talking about the five tools is being an institutional entrepreneur. And so how do you balance that? How do you balance being in the profession, but also, you know, trying to find these kind of unique niches for, for pushing things that, that many people in the profession, you know, might feel uncomfortable with? Yeah, that's a, um, a great question. Let me, um, so start with a, a recommendation to everyone to read Kenneth Boulding's uh, review in the Journal of Political Economy of uh, Paul Samuelson's um, Foundations of Economic Analysis published in the late 1940s. Um, in that review, Boulding, who remember, Samuelson is the first John Bates Clark medal winner. Boulding is the second. So we're talking about a clash of the titans in some level and uh bolding again very young at that time he's a young young economist 15 years out maybe removed from from graduate school and uh he argues that the flawless precision of the samuelsonian project is going to prove to be less fruitful than the literary borderland between economics and sociology now that decision by him to do that had costs associated with it because obviously the Samuelsonian revolution took off and Bolding was kind of left on the side. But yet Bolding never showed any, any regrets. He never showed any bitterness. When I uh, came into contact with him, which is in the 1980s, he's in his 80s, um, and uh, he was such a dynamic professor. He was great. He was a professor's professor. And his main uh, impact on all of us was to communicate to us the sheer joy of figuring things out. And that's what we got from him. Just, this is what academics is about. It's the sheer joy of finding things out. It's, it's, uh, critical and, and vital and jump in and do it and exist in this borderland between economics and sociology, just like he did. But that also would include economics and politics, which is Buchanan. And so let me give you another reference, which is a paper by Buchanan that's never been published, but you can find it in the George Mason, James Buchanan archives. And it's called The Dishwater of, of the Orthodoxy. And what Buchanan wanted to advise his students to do was not to learn to swim in the dishwater of the profession. He says the dishwater of the profession is so dull and drab that it doesn't even stink anymore, right? Because nothing is live in it. Right? Right. Think about that as communicating that. And he said, so one thing advice to, to young graduate students is go learn to swim in the dishwater. He said, no, no, no. But at the same time, you're going to challenge the dishwater. You're going to want to unclog the drain and flush the water away with fresh new water. But at the same time, you can't have the arrogance of the eccentric who stands outside of the profession and says, everything you guys do is terrible or whatever. And so it's this dance between that. And so one of the things that Buchanan used to say to us in class was, it's not the courage of your convictions that matter. It's the courage to withstand the critique of your convictions that matter. And so, you know, to me, that was sort of this very motivating thing that I wanted to try to do. Uh, again, you know, this, this, this sort of uh, invitation to inquiry, the fascination of the ideas, you know, if anyone ever met Jim Buchanan or Gordon Tulloch or Kenneth Boulding, one of the things that would really rattle them is how intellectually curious these people were. It's amazing. Same thing with Lynn Ostrom and same thing with Vernon Smith. They're lifelong learners. They don't, they don't feel like they have it fixed and settled, you know, it's, they're constantly, uh, you know, uh, uh, questioning things. And my 
academic eye teeth were focused on the Soviet tragedy. And so in dealing with the rise, the history, the ideological ideas which motivated the Russian Revolution, the contact of those ideas with a refractory reality, uh, 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 you know, that caused the system not to do what it was supposed to do, its collapse, its transition, that led me to not only take these ideas of, like, say, the literary borderland between economic sociology, but also the kind of work between the economics of politics and that borderland law and, and whatnot, and you had to bring all of that to bear to make sense of the Soviet tragedy, um, which, you know, we don't have time to go into it here, but the, 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 the total toll on human suffering from the Soviet tragedy is unimaginable and and you have to wrap your head around it to to sort of make sense of how tragic this was we're talking about you know millions of lives lost not because of the natural process of things but because your government decided to murder you and and so you know we're 20 million at a minimum right maybe upwards to you know, 60 to 100 million, depending on your estimates, but at a minimum, 20 million people. And that's not because of war or anything. That's because of forced government extermination of, of these souls. And that defines the 20th century. So think about that. And so how do I understand that? So I need to look not only at prices and property and pr property prices and profit and loss. Those are critical. You have to do that. But also you have to examine the history of the Russian culture. You have to understand the legal environment, the political environment, and the social and cultural mores that exist and that as an economist if we treat it as purely a technical problem we're going to miss so much of what went on and so that's a huge sin of omission and so what i tried to do was bring that in there and then that led to other works that we did so we went from the soviet uh you know uh history and soviet transition to then studying development economics in general to your work for example on failed and weak states uh to our work on humanitarian assistance having to do with katrina your own work on international humanitarian uh tradition and then looking at ways in which societies can be torn apart but then re reconfigure themselves and this is part of the reason why i think our research has been uh, and our teaching efforts, I think, have been somewhat um, combustible in, in some sense. I mean, in a very small sense. I mean, we have so much more to do. So I don't want to sound satisfied. And I don't want to do a Leon Lett and spike the ball on the five-yard line when we need to get all the way into the, to the end zone. But I think there's an energy that's involved with Austrian economics here at George Mason, which doesn't exist elsewhere, precisely because we had this desire to bring these ideas from the blackboard from the head and the blackboard and in the journals to address pressing issues that exist in the world while not being a policy advocate, just simply being a scientist about studying tremendous social disruptions. So we think of the failed and weak states as a research program. You know, your work on after war was a research exploration, not a you know, an effort to advise governments to do something. You are not engaged in social control. You're engaged in social understanding. Same thing with doing bad and doing good. And that's what I was trying to do in Why Perestroika Failed uh, or Calculation Coordination. Uh, you know, my first book on the political economy of Soviet socialism, that was really, you know, about trying to understand the history 
and the formation of this system. And then the other works were about the collapse of the system and then the operation of the system inside of it. But they weren't, even though I was dealing with transitional political economy, I didn't view myself as an advisor telling governments what to do. I was, a, I was trying to understand the process that was undergoing. And I view your work similar to that. And I view that's what we were trying to do with Katrina as well, is we were trying, when we did the Katrina work, you know, we have a, a, a natural experiment in which a natural disaster takes the social relations and tears them apart for a bit. And then we have to see how they reform themselves and come back. And we were trying to study that, not advise that, right? So, you know, the power there is that if you go down there and you see what, like, the network of Southern Baptist churches did. I wasn't an advisor to Southern Baptist churches. I was someone who was trying to understand how they organized their network. And this comes across if you read the, um, you know, the stuff that was put on Medium, you know, to summarize the 10th anniversary of the work. And, you know, again, like the number of journal articles and number of books that came out of that, the work of Virgil Storr and his colleagues, like the work he did with Emily Chamley Wright, but also with Stephanie uh, Halfley and also with um, uh, Laura Grub you know, really gets at this idea of the conditions of community revival and development, not in the sense of social control, but just simply trying to socially understand what are the compartments that live at this intersection between economics and sociology, economics and politics, and using the tools of economic reasoning to help us understand that. That's great. One final question. Uh, and so we've talked about the formation and the history of the Hayek program. We've talked about its, its present-day relevance. And so I want to ask you one question which is open-ended and so answer it and take it however you want but but kind of forward-looking and speculative and so in, in your ideal world where do you see the Hayek program in the future and you can take that as ever you want take it a year from now five years a decade decades out but but where do you see the future of the Hayek program and its, and its relevance in the profession so the first thing I would like to do is I would love it if uh, everyone who came through our offices left recognizing that we are lifelong learners, that there is no catechism here, but instead an invitation to inquiry, and that it's curiosity that drives all of us in the pleasure of finding things out, as opposed to the idea that we have answers to everything. I want to not necessarily you know, one way people judge this sometimes is to say, oh, that's surprising. He has to come up with a new clever thing that's surprising to me. I don't necessarily want to surprise people, but I want to try to be the type of scholar that when people listen to me when I'm 80, as opposed to when I was 50, that they say, oh, he kept learning. He kept, you know, uh, taking different, you know, bites of the apple and, and, and whatnot on this. And so to me, I think some of the most exciting programs that we have besides our own internal programs with our graduate students, which we take great pleasure in doing and developing, but also our program with the Adam Smith Fellows, uh, which works with PhD students uh, across the, the world now, actually, uh, and in partnership with our colleagues at University of Arizona, as well as King's College London. And these Adam Smith Fellows in the fields of the social sciences and the humanities meet and discuss with us these ideas in a kind of classic Socratic seminar setting. And we're constantly learning from them, and, and that's fascinating. We had now had a new program called our Morgenstern Fellows, which works with uh, more quantitative-oriented social scientists to sort of see how the interface between the kind of questions that we ask can be maybe addressed 
with more modern quantitative methods and, and the intersection of that and what are the limits of that. I hope that question comes in. And so to me, as long as our Hayek program uh, continues to reflect the lifelong learning of Hayek himself, who I think was a tremendous lifelong learner, uh, you know, seven decades of research that are in his career, you know, and, and the difference between him in the 1980s and him in the 1920s, there's a continuity in it, but there's also a com an increasing question questions that he's asking are broader and broader. And so, you know, this is like Richard Feynman's point, which is that I'd much rather uh, ask a question that can't be answered than ever provide answers that can't be questioned. And I think that attitude should be the one that people come away from. And I hope that that is reflected in the symbolism that we use in the building. This is the last thing I'll say. So when visitors come here, uh, so as you could probably tell from my answers, I have a problem of being long-winded. Uh, my wife often makes fun of me with my PowerPoint presentations because she said, Pete, it's called a PowerPoint, not a power paragraph. And, uh, and this is true of my, my life in general, I think. Uh, someone once made, I used to coach basketball and I used to send emails to the parents about what was going on. And one of the guys who uh, worked for the FBI he came up to me and he said, he goes, man, you write long emails. And I said, hey, I'm an academic. I get paid by the word, uh, you know, to try to explain this to him. But we have three quotes that are up. We have many quotes and pictures in the, in the building to try to reflect to the graduate students. But we have three quotes in particular. In our main seminar room, uh, which is called the Ludwig von Mises Seminar Room, we have a quote from the last paragraph of Mises' Human Action. And this is a quote where Mises points out about the, the importance of the stakes that are involved in getting basic economic education across to the citizenry as well as in the profession. And I, sh I want everyone to see that and absorb that last paragraph because to me, the Soviet tragedy is the opposite of what Mises is trying to talk about. Soviet tragedy is when we actually fail to communicate the basic ideas about property prices and profit and loss and what happens to a system where politics makes all the decisions for us rather than, than, than non-political arena of the private sector or the nonprofit sector. And so that, that quote is our motivation. The stakes are very high. And then as we walk into the building, the first quote we see is from Hayek that says, nobody can be a great economist who is only an economist. In fact, the economist who is only an economist can be a great danger to society. I like to say I have a Betke proviso of that, which is that nobody is as dangerous as an economist who only knows economics except for the moral philosopher who knows no economics at all. Um, and so that's our motto. But then when you go into the Buchanan room, seminar room, which is where we have a lot of our dissertation defenses and everything, there's a quote from Buchanan at the founding of the Thomas Jefferson Center, which in many ways is just as influential in what we're thinking we're doing with the continuation of the Center for Study of Market Processes with the Thomas Jefferson Center for Studies in Political Economy and Social Philosophy at, at UVA in the early 60s. You put those two together, you kind of get what we're trying to do in the Hayek program. And that, I think, is our mission. And what, Hayek, uh, what Buchanan says in that is that the economist must invest and learn in the technical aspects of economic reasoning so they can engage in the assessment of how alternative institutional arrangements impact the ability of individuals to realize the gains, productive gains from specialization and peaceful social cooperation. 
that Buchanan says. So we first must learn technical economics. That's the investment in price theory. We got to really hammer down price theory and understand what the nature of the price system is. So price theory and price price theory and market system. That's our, our first and foremost responsibility of teaching. But then Buchanan has a second part of that, which he says, but frankly, what happens is the economists continue by opening up themselves to the moral and philosophical questions that are raised whenever we talk about what is the proper scope and scale of government activity. And it's that second point, which I think also we want to bring in. So when we think about things like the financial crisis, or we think about things like development economics, or for example, in the Katrina project, there is besides the technical economics of how alternative institutional environments structure the incentives that economic actors face, there's also the moral component about what does it mean for an individual to live as a free and responsible individual who lives in a society where they can prosper in the market economy and also choose to live in caring communities. And so what all is that involved because of the humane, uh, the humane vision of the liberal society? And that, that brings me to the last point I want to stress is that, again, I, I want to view this as primarily a scholarly project. We are concerned with methodological issues in the sciences of, the, of man, of the human sciences, methodological issues, of analytical issues associated with understanding of society of change and dynamics. And our knowledge from that methodology and those analytics should inform our discourse over what is the humane society. And it's the interconnection between economics, political economy, and social philosophy that is what our Hayek program stands for, which I view as being captured in those quotes from Mises and Hayek and Buchanan. And I hope that's what our graduate students internalize, and that's what I hope visitors in looking at us see and say, hmm, those guys are doing interesting things. And those guys are, and gals, are doing interesting things and pushing boundaries that need to be pushed in the social sciences. So, yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Pete, for taking the time to, to talk with me today about uh, the various aspects of the Hayek program and the rich history and uh, all the wonderful things we have going on now, but also the, the bright future ahead. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Chris. Thank you for listening to the Hayek program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.